I got here in 1978 to go to law school. And, and the one thing I know for sure is that the people who got here with me in 1978 are absolutely positive that it were the people that started getting here in 79 that started <laughs> screwing up the place. Right. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. This is Clint Schumacher. I'm Kristen Short-Bennett. And I'm Dave Arnold. Welcome to Austin, Texas. If you're an eminent domain podcast or an Infrastructure Junkies podcast listener, and you're saying, hey, I'm not in Austin, well, we sure wish you were here. This is a very special episode a joint episode between the Eminent Domain Podcast and Infrastructure Junkies recorded on location at ALICLE National Eminent Domain Conference, which is the go-to CLE for eminent domain attorneys who come from all over the country. Now, we want to give special thanks to the program organizers and sponsors, Robert Thomas, Jack Sperber, and Andy Brigham, who made this recording possible. Once about every year or so, Infrastructure Junkies and the Eminent Domain Podcast collaborate to bring you a joint episode. And thanks to Clint Schumacher, we have a real treat for you today. As I said, we're in Austin, Texas, so we wanted to have a show that is uniquely Austin. Well, isn't everything about Austin kind of unique? And thanks to Clint, we have an incredible guest that truly embodies the magic that's Austin, Texas. Hold on, hold on. You got Matthew McConaughey? No, even better. Clint, Ooh. you want to take it from here? You bet. I am very excited about today's guest. We have the former mayor of the city where we are, Austin, Texas. Steve Adler was elected as Austin's 52nd mayor in December of 2014 and was reelected in 2018. He was the first mayor of Austin to serve under the 10-1 council system. Mayor Adler, along with his brother, were the first in their family to graduate from college. After completing his undergraduate studies at Princeton, Mayor Adler moved to Austin to work his way through law school at the University of Texas. Mayor Adler practiced civil rights law for many years and later founded a very successful eminent domain law practice representing landowners, what is now Baron Adler, Clough, and Otto PLLC, still one of our leading firms in Texas. Mayor Adler also served for 10 years as the chief of staff and the general counsel for the Texas State Senator, Elliot Shapley working primarily on school finance, equity, and access issues. Mayor Adler has been deeply involved with and has chaired many Austin civic and nonprofit institutions over the past 20 years. Together with his wife, Diane Land, Mayor Adler is the proud parent of three wonderful daughters, and he joins us today to talk about all things infrastructure, eminent domain, and of course, Austin. Mayor Adler, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. It's good to be with you. Welcome to Austin. Thank you. All right, well, let's jump right in. You've recently completed your second and final term of mayor of the city of Austin, having served in that role from 2015 until January 2022. Uh, and we're recording this in early February, where you've had somewhat of a historic ice storm here in Austin and uh, a number of electricity lines snapping. And I've uh, remarked and reflected this was a good week to be the former mayor of Austin. Most likely. <laughs> Austin's one of America's fastest growing cities. Why is everybody moving to this town? You know, I think it's, I think it's, a, I think, I think it's a magical place. I mean, I really do. I think culturally, uh, it's different than than any other city I've been in in the country. And boy, I tell you, that's even more pronounced being a, a city in Texas. Uh, but you know, as, as I look at it, I think that the one real 
key factor in this city is that the tolerance for taking risks in this city is higher than any city I know of in the world, uh, which means you you have people trying things. In most cities around the, the world, when you try something and you fail, you get punished. You don't get invited back to the same rooms. You lose access to capital. You had your shot, and, and now they move on to somebody else, but not in this city. And in, in this city... People try things that are, are different. It's okay to fail so long as you, you learn and come back better. And because of that, there's greater innovation in this city than, than any city I'm aware of, which is why you have more startups per capita here than any city in the country. Uh, it's why all the tech companies want to come here because there's a really qualified work base uh, in this city, and that attracts companies it's also a beautiful city with a river running through. It's right next to the hill country. The music is great. Uh, you know, we're one of the live music capitals of the world, and we have the best breakfast tacos in the world. I mean, Amen. Really? <laughs> well, you first came to my attention as a young lawyer, as an eminent domain lawyer, working on a number of cases that were, you know, leading eminent domain cases. But you have, you bring to us today a very unique perspective. You've represented property owners. You've worked in the legislature. You've, as we've talked about, worked as the mayor of one of America's largest and fastest growing cities. And you've seen eminent domain from many different angles. I'd love, if you don't mind, give us your thoughts on that tension between the necessity of eminent domain and then the impact that it has on private property owners. You know, the tension certainly exists. And I will tell you, as a practitioner, as an eminent domain lawyer, I became really comfortable with that. Not so much the tension, but just the fact of eminent domain. I mean, the fact that that, that the public needs to acquire property from private individuals makes perfect sense. And heck, in, in our firm, we often used to say that the highest and best use of, of any piece of property is to be condemned in an eminent domain case. <laughs> So there was, there was, there was always, like there was always the remedy that added the fairness to the situation. So I became comfortable with it. But when you move outside of the practitioners, that doesn't exist. In the role I was just in, just the mere concept of being able to take away private money, uh, regardless of whether there's compensation given to it or not, you don't even get to that place. Just the concept of being able to compel the transfer of, of property hangs up a lot of people, and they don't get they don't get past that. I probably would would look at my jurors a little bit differently than I did way back when, uh, leaving kind of that insular bubble that is the practitioners of, of eminent domain. Mayor, it seems to me, I understand you were primarily a landowner attorney when you were practicing law, and then when you became mayor, a public official, and you needed to get things done, and you did get things done. You got a lot done during two terms. You had to switch hats, essentially. Was there? Did you develop a difference in perspective between being a traditional landowner attorney to now being somebody who's trying to get it done? And you're dealing, essentially, not directly you weren't dealing with landowner attorneys, but they're still out there, in, from our perspective, sometimes in the way of a project. Did you feel a shift in perspective, or did you just kind of take it all in stride? Oh, there's definitely a shift in, in perspective that goes along with the shift in position. I remember the first few days of, of being mayor, I was taking the elevator up to my floor. There was a, a young woman also on the elevator as we were headed up. 
And I could tell she wanted to say something to me and wasn't quite being able to get out whatever it was that she wanted to say. But I could tell by the floor that she pressed, she was headed to the city attorney's floor in the building. So she was an attorney or, or, or staff up on that floor. And I said hi to her and introduced myself because I, I was the new kid in the building. And still, she you could tell. And just before the elevator door opened up, at, uh, she, she looked at me. She said, so you're on our side now, right? <laughs> what did you say? <clears throat> I said, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, that's great. You know, it did mean I had to leave the firm and turn it over to Chris. And that was hard to do. Uh, but obviously there were there were conflicts. But yes, a difference in perspective. But from a legal standpoint, the city attorney made very clear to me when I was elected that I was mayor and not the city attorney. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was hard sometimes as I would watch our city attorney's office prosecute a case differently than I than than I would have right. uh, if I was one of the attorneys working on the on the case. But the real difference is from a policy standpoint is going back to the question we talked about earlier, which is there's a public policy premium because of popular sentiment to avoid condemnation rather than just to recognize it as a civic tool. Well, you've been quoted. I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that happened during your terms. Um, you've been quoted as saying that this is Austin's golden age of mobility. I love that. And during your time as mayor, two major infrastructure bonds passed. The Project Connect was a $7.1 billion transit plan involving new rail lines, rapid transit, bus lines, and more, including $300 million in funding for anti-displacement initiatives. There was the $720 million smart corridor mobility bond that passed in 2016 and was more than four times larger, as I understand, than any transportation bond previously approved in Austin and addressed issues with Loop 360, I-35, and Highway 183. By the way, for our listeners, if you want some more detail on that, I just listened to a fantastic podcast that you did uh, with Mr. Wick, I believe. Jim Wick. Jim yeah. Wick, talking about these projects. That was fascinating. So check that out if you want more information about that. But uh, these were historic, huge, unprecedented initiatives um, that passed w easily with big margins. So how are things changing in Austin as a result of this funding? And are we seeing the results yet? That was a good list. I right? I know. I, it back. made me happy to read it. And, and it wasn't even everything that needed to be on that list. Heck, we passed a bond for almost uh, half a billion dollars just for active transportation for the bicycle network and yes. sidewalks and trails in addition to that. Uh, but it was a shift. And really, it's what the community needed. When I ran for election in 2014... We weren't talking about social justice issues. We weren't talking about homelessness. We weren't talking about, we were talking about congestion, right? Uh, which all my friends coming in from, from LA tell me is kind of cute. Adorable. They know that. But in the 20 years before I got elected, cumulatively, we didn't do as much in, in transportation bonds as we did that very first bond in 2016. 
That's 20 years cumulatively. And when you look at a city that's behind eight ball with respect to mobility, there's a reason for that. And this is a community that, that from a policy level, basically decided not to build infrastructure on the belief that if we didn't build infrastructure, then people would stop coming. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. <laughs> uh, people come anyhow, and it just it becomes real difficult to move around. So as I just left office, we have over $20 billion in mobility projects that are underway. We're doubling the size of the airport in addition to the list that you gave. You know, sometimes it's hard to do those kinds of things because a politician can't get it done and then cut a ribbon eight months later and take credit for it. (laughs) In fact, almost all of those things are things that my successor or their successor are going to be the ones to be able to cut the ribbons on, which is oftentimes why these things don't happen the way that they should. But, you know, that's what I ran on, and I got elected to do that. Well, I was was really, one of the things that really interested me was the whole... concept of the bike network. And if you're in Austin, you should be able to, and you work in Austin, you should be able to get on your bike and get safely to where you're going. And I think it was Mr. Wick on the podcast that was talking about every person that you see on a bike is not in a car. And we're Texans. We love our cars, but it's really important for those to be safe and accessible for everybody to get around on the bike. But I think they said on the, or maybe you said this on that podcast that that bike network isn't even going to be done until 2025. Mm-hmm. The things that you're that you've laid out while you were mayor, you're right. We're going to see that for years and maybe decades to come. The results of those, isn't yeah, that right? Absolutely, what you said is true. And you know, it was scheduled to, to be done sometime in the 2030s. Oh wow! But we moved up that investment. So to get it done in 2025 was a huge huge acceleration of that project. But when that's done, uh, the Austin Bicycle Network will be larger than any city in the countries other than than New York City. Wow. Uh, And people will be able to move around. I went to the Northern European countries with the then Secretary of Transportation, Fox, under Obama. And we looked at the bicycle in the capital cities in, in those Scandinavian countries. And I went to a parking garage in downtown Amsterdam, 27,000 parking spaces just for bicycles in this parking garage uh, for people to move. And, you know, I hear the stories about, of course, this is Texas, won't happen in Texas, too hot for people to ride bicycles in Texas. Except if you look at the pictures of those Scandinavian capitals in the early 1970s, it looks just as bad or worse with car traffic than where we are. But if you build a network that is truly safe, physical separation from lane, so that mothers are comfortable sending their kids on those trails, then everybody starts using them. And where it costs people ten, eleven thousand dollars $11,000 a year to maintain and operate a vehicle, it's a few hundred dollars for a bicycle. The experience around the world shows that people move and do that. And I saw pictures of people bicycling in those countries in in winter, snow, blizzards, and (laughs) storms. So I don't buy this stuff about it being too hot. There'll be people that will use it. Others will use it over time. But I think that it's a necessary part of mobility in our future. Absolutely. So with all of these transportation infrastructure initiatives that passed while you were mayor, was your approach to these initiatives impacted by your experience in the industry as a landowner attorney? I think so, because I, it, the projects didn't scare me, ah. uh, and, and the scale 
that, that, that needed to happen in order to really get things done was something that I was used to. You know, in, in 2016, when I was proposing that $720 billion bond to, to improve 360 and 183, but most of it, $500 million of it, was our main corridors, Burnett Road, Lamar, make them get more people through them in the same amount of time. Uh, no one on my council was supporting a bond that was that size. Uh, the probably the consensus on the council when it, I initially proposed it probably would have been like a hundred million dollars, mm. except I had seen hundred million dollar projects. I knew what you <laughs> could get done for a hundred million dollars and it was not transformative change. Uh, so I think that part of it was getting used to the scale, not being scared of projects, recognizing that they're long-term, but knowing that they needed to be kicked off. And again, Acquiring property in order to be able to get things done was just a civic tool. Robert Thomas here. I'm one of the planning chairs for the National Eminent Domain and Land Valuation Conference coming at you live from Austin, Texas, where we're in the midst of the 40th edition of the conference. I'd like to invite you to join us for the 41st edition of the conference, now set for February 1 through February 3, 2024 at the JW Marriott in New Orleans. Yes, please join us at this time next year in New Orleans for two and a half days of programs devoted to right-of-way, condemnation, appraisal, and all of the topics we in the industry love. This program is designed for lawyers, appraisers, policymakers and planners, right-of-way professionals, and others in the industry. So please, I'm inviting you to come join us in New Orleans, February 1 through February 3, 2024, for the American Law Institute CLE Eminent Domain and Land Valuation Litigation Conference. Thank you. This episode of Infrastructure Junkies is proudly brought to you by my company, Blackbird Right-of-Way. We specialize in relocation assistance services nationwide. From one parcel to 100, let Blackbird handle your relocation challenges. You can find out more about us at our website. It's blackbirdrow.com. That's blackbirdrow.com. All right, I'm going to pivot just a little bit. You were one of the lawyers in State versus Schmidt, which is one of Texas' seminal cases on the issue of community damages, You know whether things like diversion of traffic, increased security of travel, uh, lessen visibility to people that are going by and inconvenience of construction activities, whether those kinds of things are compensable. But one of the things that's always interesting to me is the story behind the case. And so I, I'd love to hear that. I mean, it's a case that's been cited in California and Minnesota and South Dakota, but what's the backstory? How did that case come to be and make its way all the way to the Texas Supreme Court? You know, whenever I think about that case, I'm reminded of the often used expression that, you know, Schmidt happens. <laughs> uh, because I, I lost that case. Uh, my firm, we lost that case. You know, uh, Leon Schmidt, an elderly kind of crusty landowner that had acquired property in his lifetime. I'm not sure he ever sold a piece of property. Owned a lot of really the prime retail lots in the city and uh, was going to be significantly impacted on, I don't know, five, ten dozen tracks when they were widening 183 and Ben White. Uh, so he was a prime client for eminent domain firms to get. 
back at that time when Mike Barron and I first approached him to hire us, we were kind of like the new kids. We didn't have the track record. I mean, the real dons of eminent domain back then were Robert Norris and Danny Womack. And they were the ones really that had kind of cornered the market. So I remember uh, Mike and I being in his office, which could not have been more than four feet by five feet <laughs> in his department store that he had downtown on Congress Avenue, urging him to hire us. And for some reason, he, he did. I nearly lost case by countering his offer to hire us. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, well, thanks for stopping by, at which point Mike Barry kicked me out of the room and <laughs> apologized for this young kid he'd brought along. But the firm would take uh, Mr. Schmidt's offer. So we handled those cases. And it was really what established uh, our firm. I remember we won the case at the Court of Appeals in one of the most lengthy, well-written Court of Appeals opinions I have ever seen in, in any case or any field of jurisprudence. And the Supreme Court denied writ on the appeal by the state of Texas. Uh, and we thought the case was over and we had won big. And on a motion for rehearing I didn't of that. the writ denial, the wow. Supreme Court took the case. Uh, and then obviously it didn't go well for the good guys back then. I'm going to pivot again, and I this isn't even in our outline. I'm surprising you on this one, but I I have really enjoyed reading about what an advocate you are for women and girls, and during your term as mayor, you were very involved in being an advocate. And just for our listeners, just for fun, we're not going to cover this in detail on this podcast because we're talking about infrastructure, but Google Mayor Adler and Wonder Woman. Okay, just do it. And if you don't know that story, I'll tell you very briefly that there was a Alamo Draft House had a screening of the new Wonder Woman movie for just women, just women, and some nincompoop moron sent felt compelled to send an email to Mayor Adler saying this is ridiculous and women are the second class gender and blah blah blah. And Mayor Adler, you you wrote the most brilliant response to this man. It was hysterical. It was accurate. It was wonderful. So listeners, go check it. Just Google. It will pop right up. It's one of my favorite stories about your term as mayor. So as a woman, I appreciate your initiatives and your advocacy for women and girls. So thank you for that. That was my side note. I'll get back to the outline. Sorry about that. Um, I, okay. At the beginning of every new year, our beloved Austin-based Texas Monthly releases their Bum Steer of the Year Award issue. And I will tell you, I, I love this. I've loved it since I was a kid. My parents would get Texas Monthly. For those of you that don't live in Texas or don't get Texas Monthly, they just kind of poke fun at those of us in uh, this great state who have done something kind of goofy. And sometimes it's really weird stuff where police arrest some woman for surfing on her car. I mean, it can be weird stuff. Sometimes they poke fun at politicians. Here's what's interesting about this year's Bum Steer of the Year Awards. Texas Monthly has called, has awarded the Bumsteer of the Year Award to the city of Austin, which was perplexed me. The magazine went pretty hard on you guys, saying that Austin is, quote, not only is it a surf park town, it's a prohibitively expensive one. And they went on to say, quote, the bang you get for your buck is terrible traffic, doubled property taxes, annual rent hikes, chain restaurants from Denver and Portland, Oregon sidewalks littered with electric scooters lying flat on their backs, and a culture owned primarily by Live Nation, end quote. Is there any validity to these statements? And is Austin still weird? I got here in 1978 to go to law school. 
And, and the one thing I know for sure is that the people who got here with me in 1978 are absolutely positive that it were the people that started getting here in 79 that started screwing up the place. Right. I mean, it just wasn't the same after they got here in 79 and 80. And the amazing thing about this city is the people who got here four years ago love this city and are sure that the people who got here two years ago are the ones that started screwing up the place. Yeah. You know, there's a, um, a wonderful bar place to hear music, the hole in the wall on the track. It's been here almost 50 years, and people can't even imagine the city without the hole in the wall here. Uh, and the, every once in a while you hear rumors that they're going to go away, and it would be devastating because we would no longer be the Austin that we were, except that I remember when I got here for law school, and it was the new kid on the block, <laughs> and nobody knew anything about this hole in the wall that had shown up in the city. You know, this is a magical place, and, and it's self, the people who come here self-select to, to live here. And yes, it's changed, but Austin does change well. You know, I'm reminded of the old Yogi Berra deal about how that place is so popular and packed that no one goes there anymore. <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of what that article read like to me. I mean, it's a sure. horrible place. It's amazing that anybody still wants to live here, except that this is the fastest growing <laughs> city in the country. We have the lowest unemployment rate. The economy is just absolutely on fire. You know, we do change well. We're this city where Willie Nelson went to reinvent not only country music, but who listened to country music. It's the city that created Whole Foods and the Alamo Draft House. I mean, this is a city that will continue to innovate. And yes, it'll be different, but the nature of it, which prioritizes respect for other people and acceptance and, and kindness and willingness to help and warmth and innovation and creativity and art is still as strong today as it ever was. And I believe, you know, I, I read that article. I think I read that article every four years <laughs> right? Uh, and it just, and we'll hear it again four years or sooner. It's just always the same. But throughout that time, Austin has continued to be Austin, Texas. So we're going to keep Austin weird even with the growth. Absolutely. Well, you know, Mayor, the three of us sitting on this side of the table are not from Austin, and I'm not even from Texas. But we're here for the ALICLE conference, which switches, goes from city to city every year. And what's interesting to me is some cities you go to, you can shut your eyes and you don't know whether you even left home. If we went to Omaha, Nebraska recently. And honestly, I could have been back home in Norfolk, Virginia. It all feels the same. But occasionally, there's a city that's got it going on. And you're, you get there and you're like, I am not home anymore. I'm in a new place. Why? What is it about Austin? Is it, was it, the university, was there some godfather back in the day who was unique that everybody embodies? What's so different about that? I mean, I know it's different, but what started it? You know, an interesting thing, you know, Austin, fastest growing large metropolitan area in the country every year that I was in office, doubling in population every 20 to 25 years, which is amazing growth. The most amazing thing about that rate of growth it's been constant in Austin since 1850. Since wow. 1850, this city has doubled, this metropolitan area has doubled in growth every 20 to 25 years. So I'm thinking that there's something in the water here. Or <laughs> the, the, the air. I mean, it is a beautiful place and it self-selects for a certain people. And I think that becomes kind of reinforcing. Obviously, I think the university 
helps a lot. Having the state capital here helps a lot. This is a really, really progressive liberal city in the middle of a really, really <laughs> conservative state. And it's a wonderful state, but the people who come here because they want to live in Texas, because there's no income tax or whatever, that have to make a choice. And a lot of people will go to Houston, which is a great city, and Dallas, which is a wonderful city, or San Antonio. But the people that would be happy there wouldn't really be as happy here, and vice versa. So I think that there's just something kind of culturally reinforcing about this, and it's, it's a love for music, it's a love for the breakfast tacos, and that kind of thing. It's a quality of life issue. But in a city that really does innovate and is entrepreneurial and, and pushes hard. Okay, you, you served as mayor during COVID. Um, you had to cancel South by Southwest, which is one of the great jewels of Austin. You gave the introductory speech at Pete Buttigieg's announcement of his candidacy for president. You appeared on Joe Rogan's podcast to talk about homelessness. As you look back on your term as mayor over the last r- roughly decade, what stories do you look back on and go, wow, I, I can't believe that happened? Well, I tell you, there's so many. I had never really thought about being mayor until 30 days before I decided to run. And I'm sure it came as quite a surprise <laughs> to, my, to my partners uh, who are probably downstairs, old partners, former partners. But almost every day had had moments like that. Uh, you know, as I look back, the, the mortality rate in Austin for COVID was half of what it is for the state of Texas and for the country. And we helped impact that. If the state had the same mortality rate as a whole that we have in Austin, almost 45,000 Texans would still be alive today. Wow. So I look back at those things and I say, wow, we made a, a difference. They were hard. We were in court with our governor and, and, and they're tense and those kinds of things, but we were staying safe. But then it's also, I'm greeting President Obama on the tarmac. Uh, having been told by his handlers that I'll get two minutes to say hi to the to the president, uh, who then who talks to me for I don't know fifteen twenty minutes on the tarmac and asks me if I want a, a lift downtown. Uh, so <laughs> so jumping into the to the beast with the president and wow. and, and heading uh, to downtown Austin, stopping to get a couple tacos on the on the way. I mean that's a wow moment sitting uh, around a table, same size as the table that we're at here today with the Secretary General and with the Mayor of London, Secretary uh, Guterres and um, Amir Khan from London, talking about climate change and what cities need to be doing and setting up the COP27 conference uh, that was soon to be held in, in Egypt. I mean, those are the moments you, you pinch yourself with the president in the White House arguing immigration policy with uh, Attorney General Sessions early in uh, President Trump's term. But it's even here locally when you're in front of the first grade class and, and kids are talking to you about their perception of city and what they like about the parks. It's being stopped on the street by somebody who complains or somebody who is ecstatic. I mean, it's not me at that moment. It's really the office. And you go through eight years of this, and it is such an incredible honor and privilege to be in this office, to be 
mayor of a city like Austin, it's almost every other moment <laughs> is a, oh my God, I can't believe this is real. Are you done with yes. politics? You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see. I stayed really focused on being mayor through the end of the term because mm -hmm. I knew as soon as I started looking elsewhere, I would lose track of sure. what it was that I was doing. I, you know, I need to take a moment here and, and reintroduce myself to my girls and to, to mm -hmm. Diane and apologize for <laughs> having disappeared a lot of the last uh, eight years. But I, you know, I, and we're in a lot of conversations with a lot of different people in a lot of different places, and I'm not sure what happens next, and I'm loving that. Well, I'm anxious to see what you do next. Okay, so as Dave said in his introduction, most of the people that listen to my podcast are lawyers. And there was something that you are in eminent domain lawyers at that. There was something that you said that I kind of want to follow up on as my last question, because I, I think it would be very insightful to me, and I trust it'll be very insightful to my audience. One of the things you said was, given the experience you now have, when you if you were back practicing uh, eminent domain law again, you would talk to a jury differently. Why is that? And what would you do differently? What would you say? I think for me that I tended to intellectualize cases. I felt like if I could make absolutely the best logical argument supported by facts and data that I would win. And quite frankly, I was really comfortable in that environment. So my cross-examinations were almost all really technical. And we would come up with ways to be able to cross-examine that really use the science of, of, of appraising uh, to be able to make those cases. I probably argued from my head perhaps because that's where I was most comfortable going. And frankly, we were pretty successful in doing that. I entered a world which is very different from that in the political world, especially over our last two, four, six years, where facts are not as important as how people feel. Mm -hmm. And people come in with such strong opinions about so many things you're not really going to change a lot of people's opinions on things. So being able to make arguments that are more of a feeling argument, that, that really go to impressions that people have. And I'm not saying one is better or worse. They're just different. Uh, I, I think that if I were to argue in front of a jury tomorrow, it would be significantly different than how I argued nine years ago just because I think I have really lived in a world that is different than the one that I used to live in. That's extraordinarily insightful. Thank yeah, you for sharing definitely. that. I have one more question. All right. Who's more fun? Joe Rogan or us? You guys. I thought so. Kidding? I thought so. Kidding? Yeah. That's Eat a, your heart out, Joe Rogan. Yeah, I'm sure he's listening. We've I'm sure. We've tried to initiate a Twitter war with Joe Rogan about six times, and it's yeah. for whatever reason, it's never taken off. He's not taking the bait. Clint, don't you usually have a cross-examination to end your podcast? Do you want to cross-examine sure, the mayor? Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you don't mind. Do it. That'd be great. So we have three questions that we normally ask that are, it's everybody's favorite part of the show. We call it our cross-examination segment because it's a 
chance to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better. This interview has been a little bit different because we've gotten to hear a lot about your life outside the courtroom and the court setting, but I think this will still be fun. So question number one is, is do you have any book or podcast that you would recommend to the listeners? Anything good that you've read or listened to you think other people ought to do the same? You know, for the last nine years, the only books that I have read have been urban planning and city planning. <laughs> I, bet, I, bet. <laughs> I have a pile next to my bed of, of books I've been collecting to be able to read. I wouldn't recommend any of the urban planning books <laughs> that, I, that I've read, so check back with me. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, if you could bring back any fashion trend, what would it be? Any fashion trend? Well, I tell you, I, my girls tell me I am so far lacking in, <laughs> in, in, in fashion. Uh, probably wide ties, just because uh, I spill uh. on my shirts. <laughs> very, very practical. It's the buffer. It's the buffer. I, I, I thought you were going to say because you still have a lot of them. <laughs> Don't want them to go to waste. Really. All right, here's here's the last one. Someone has gifted you a billboard on I-35 coming into downtown Austin for 30 days. You can put whatever you want on it. What do you put on the billboard? You know, I would probably put in a message about needing help to put to bed the homelessness issue in the mm. city. And I would do that just because it became such a huge issue uh, in our city as we were dealing with it. And we're so close to being able to put it behind us. I think Austin in three years will be the first city our size in the country to to be able to reach equilibrium in homelessness, something that the West Coast cities were never able to do, but it goes down in that list of things that you initiate and won't happen until you're gone. We need a little bit more push. So I probably would be there just because that's where my head is right now. Well, I'm sorry, this is not in my notes, but, <laughs> but what you said is intriguing to me. And here's, let me tell you something I wrestle with. So I'm an individual citizen, right? And I see the homelessness and it breaks my heart, but I don't know what to do. What do individual citizens do to help remedy that? Homelessness is a tough issue. I mean, there will always be people that find themselves in that place. And the question is, can you develop the infrastructure to reach equilibrium so that you can help people exit or find a place at the same rate that people fall into homelessness? And if you don't do that, if you are content, as most cities are, with having really strict no camp, no sit, no lie ordinances where you force everybody into the woods. Everyone walks around town. They think, okay, we've fixed the homelessness issue because I don't see anybody that's until it just bursts at the seam. And then it's of a scale that it's, I don't know what you do if you're in LA or San Francisco or Seattle or Portland. It is those cities will not be able to solve their challenge. It's just way too big. So I think that more than anything else, what an individual needs to do is to be able to recognize that just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not a challenge. In this city, we decriminalized homelessness. And quite frankly, everybody came out and, and, and a good Samaritan gave out 2,500 tents in our city. And overnight, suddenly you could see the challenge and it was very disconcerting and disruptive. Now we've housed some of those people were housing more, but we changed the law back to where it was before. And now people are hidden and our community thinks, okay, we've solved the challenge again, but we haven't. But the difference between us and other cities is we had a year when we actually saw it. And we saw it when it wasn't such a scale that we can't solve. 
Now it's hiding again, but we can't unsee what we saw. So this is a community that's still building out the infrastructure to fix it at a rate we never would have had we not seen it. Mm. I think that individually it's just one for people to recognize there is hope. The organizations that are out doing this community first in this town, they're they're 98% successful when they can get somebody keeping them off the street. So it's purely a question of scale. So as an individual, I would say, one, don't lose hope. Two, I would resist the urge to demonize people who are experiencing homelessness and reduce everyone to the caricature of somebody who's an addict and has mental health challenges because that's not most people, although those people exist and, and we need to help them too. And it's demanding of, of your local government and officials that they don't hide the challenge and they actually fix it. It's like painting over a water spot. Exactly. You didn't fix the problem. Right. Wow. Well, this conversation has been gold. I really have enjoyed it. I am so happy you took some time to join us here in wacky Austin, Texas. And Clint, thank you so much for setting this up. Yeah, you know what? This is the thanks needs to go to Steve Adler, who was very, very gracious to give us his time to come. Very humble. Was a pleasure to get to work with, and so I'm so thankful that you gave us this time. This is very, very valuable. I'm Absolutely. really looking forward to going downstairs. I can remember uh, I was the ABA chair of the eminent domain section way back when, and involved in this conference. It's been a while. Wow. Go downstairs see if I still recognize anybody. <laughs> Great plan. Thank you so much for joining All us. Right. It was Thank an you, absolute Mayor. pleasure. Thank you. Kristen Bennett and I sure hope that you're enjoying this episode. When you finish this show, please check out our new website at InfrastructureJunkies.com. That's InfrastructureJunkies.com. While you're there, please sign up for our mailing list. Also, follow us on the Twitters at IJPod, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and we're even on TikTok. You can find us anywhere. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.